the other week, I was, uh, man, you know, the weather's been nice except for today. And, and yesterday when we had our men's event, um, you know, we planned a cookout for all the guys, and it, you know, it rained six inches. But, um, man, the weather's been really nice, so, so we've been grilling more at, at my house. And, uh, you know, the other week I was, I was grilling out with some family, and I was talking to a neighbor that was behind me. Uh, and so I was, I was, you know, I was kind of preoccupied with two different things. And if you know me, I am a huge, huge um, advertisement for the Blackstone Grill. Um, Blackstone is the future. Uh, you know, all the other grills have tried to compete with it, but it, it can't. You know, there's no flame. There's no, like, the, the temperature's better for your meat. Like, it's just, it, it's better. It's superior. And so I was using that. And sometimes, you know, I talk about Blackstone in such a kind, gentle way, and it backfires. Because here's the thing about Blackstone. Yes, there's no grate, so, you know, there's no flare-ups. The flame can't get through. But depending on what you're cooking, the grease can't leave either unless you scrape it to the back. And so um, we were out there the other night, and we had some oil on there because it's basically like, uh, you know, it's a, it's a griddle. It's, it's, it's cast iron, and, and you're cooking on it. And I was talking to my neighbor, not really paying attention, and I dropped the piece of meat. And oil went everywhere. I, I don't know if you can see it, but like the scar, I don't know if it's going to scar, but like it was all over my neck, it was on my shirt, it was on my arms. And I, I like exclaimed, like, like my family, I was like, and I'm trying to talk to her, praise God, sanctification's happening because a cuss word didn't come out. You know the Lord is working. It backfired and I did not expect it. I didn't expect it. Man, Blackstone, you betrayed me. If anybody from Blackstone is listening to this, this is a free advertisement, so, you know, whatever. But I share that story because today as we finish, man, we finish our study already and not yet looking at the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. I share that story about not expecting it, taking off guard, right? Because I believe that the passage we're going to look at today is probably not one of the most influential passages and most important passages in Ephesians, but probably all of Scripture. What we're going to learn today is that practically what does it look like to stand in culture, stand firm in your life and everything that's going on, and follow Jesus in the midst of, man, let's just be honest, sometimes life hits us like that grease did. <laughs> it hits us in the mouth and we're not ready. What does it look like to stand firm? Well, we know that Ephesians was written about 30 years after Jesus had died and been buried and been resurrected. We know that it was about 30 years after that. Paul, this guy who was writing in chains, which he's going to say today, um, he's going to be writing a, a stand firm Ephesians. This is how he ends the book, and practically um, it's one of the most important ones. And so verse 10 in chapter 6, that's where we'll be starting. It'll be on the screen. If you don't have your Bible, uh, we have Bibles for free in the lobby. Please go pick one up um, because we want to put Scripture in your hands. And so Ephesians 6, starting at verse 10, here's where we'll be. As we conclude, man, you guys were a part of the first uh, book studies here at, at Citizens Church. We're only two months old, almost two months old. Um, and so, yeah, we're finishing Ephesians today. So here we go. Verse 10, finally, finally be strengthened by the Lord and his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, 
against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Finally, well, we don't need to know the Greek to know what that word means. Paul is concluding his letter. He's writing the end of his letter to the Ephesians, and here's what he says. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord. And verse 12, I would say, is probably one of the most important passages that we could, or important verses that we could ever find within the passage. And here's what verse 12 says. For our struggle, look back down at it. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. If there's one thing that Paul's been talking about in Ephesians, it's that there is unity within the body of Christ, right? What have we been looking at the last few weeks? Husbands, this is how you treat your wives. Wives, this is how you treat your husbands. Last week, parents, this is what it looks like to treat your children. Children, this is what it looks like to honor mom and dad. Paul has been talking about the relationship factor that comes with being a Jesus follower. We know that being a Jesus follower is not a solitude assignment. It's not a secluded experiment. To follow Jesus is to follow Jesus in community. And honestly, Adam is one of the most selfish people, probably the most selfish person I know. And so I need God's kindness and instruction to say, hey, this is how you treat people around you. This is how you treat people around you, Adam. Because I know that when you wake up, your ego says it's all about you. But honestly, if you want life, give yours away. Don't let it revolve around you. Let it revolve around the good of others. And so Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But it's against the enemy, and if we could say it like this, we would. You have an enemy, and it's not each other. You have an enemy. One, you need to know you have an enemy. But two, and most importantly, it's not each other. Nothing's worse than not knowing the real enemy. You know, we're coming up on D-Day, right? June 6, 1944, we'll celebrate uh, Allied troops landing on the beaches of Normandy. Studies show us that probably the earliest landings happened around 4 a.m. And what's very interesting about D-Day is we know, of course, that it changed the, the course of the war. That it was huge. It was a, it was a huge victory for the Allied forces. Around 156,000, 160,000 uh, troops from uh, USA, Great Britain, Canada, uh, all these different troops were landing on the beaches of Normandy. But did you know, and this is what I love, man, it, it's just, it's, it's fascinating. That weeks and honestly years leading up to D-Day... A plan of deception is what made D-Day so successful. Starting in about 1943, under the command of the Allied forces, there was an Operation Bodyguard taking place. And within Operation Bodyguard, what they called it, there was an Operation Fortitude South and Operation Fortitude North. And here's basically what happened. Weeks leading up to D-Day, the Allied forces did not try to hide an attack. They actually told the Axis powers, Germany, right? They told them an attack was coming. And how did they do that? Well, it's very interesting. Under the command of General Eisenhower, they tricked the Axis forces into thinking through Operation Fortitude South and Operation Fortitude North. North being uh, Calais, France was a place that they looked at, the beaches of, of maybe Norway. And then Operation South, they thought, okay, maybe Great Britain, that these are where attacks were, were going to happen. 
there were German double agents. So there were people that were in the Axis power saying something's going on, something's going on. They actually were working for the Allied forces. But also get this, and this is incredible. What did they do to trick the Axis powers that, yes, there was an invasion coming, but it wasn't coming to Normandy? They dropped inflatable tanks and dummy soldiers for weeks in these places. For weeks, they dropped inflatable tanks and dummy soldiers. They would drop metal objects just to confuse radar. And so the Axis powers shifted all of their power to these places because they're like, no, something's happening. Something is happening. But what the Allied forces did was draw their enemy away from where the attack was actually happening. And when 156,000 soldiers showed up, there was in the tens of thousands of, of German soldiers in what people call toothpick boxes. What's even more interesting about this, right, is Hitler was known to be, um, as you would probably guess, he was sporadic, he was chaotic, people would be demoted and killed like that, and Hitler was a night owl. He slept in in the morning. And a lot of scholars say if people would have just woken up Hitler when the first calls came in at 4 a.m., they might have, could have done something. But who's waking up Hitler? They let him sleep because they were terrified. No one is waking him up. And so number one, deception, the greatest deception plan of all time. And number two, Hitler didn't wake up early, and everybody was terrified to wake him up. Y'all, it's fascinating. Dwight Eisenhower actually penned a letter that they were going to publish if this failed. It was never published, but you can see it, you can read it, and he takes full, you talk about leadership, just a side note. Eisenhower saying, hey, we tried our best, it failed, our boys, uh, you know, fought bravely, like, but it falls back on me. That's what he wrote, just in case this failed, and it, it, it didn't, as history would tell us. But I share that, because like I said, there's nothing worse than not knowing the real enemy. I mean, we're sending all of our troops, all of our resources, to decoys. Meanwhile, the enemy is on the beaches of Normandy and there's not enough of us to go against them. Operation Fortitude North and South. And here I think in the same way Paul is writing to this culture. Saying this world is not our enemy. Remember Ephesians 2 where Paul tells us who did we follow? The prince of the power of the air the sons of disobedience, the darkness of this world. And here I think Paul is, is, is reminiscing of that right into this culture, saying, church, church, you're sending all of your resources and spending all of your time fighting the wrong enemy. And meanwhile, there's tragedy going on here, and we don't even see it. And I ask us, how long will we fight one another? I mean, honestly, like how long will we fight over what worship sets should look like, traditional versus contemporary, should we have lights, should I be in a collar, should, should you know, like, like, like how long will we send our resources towards these things, and all the long, there's orphans, marriages are broken, people are in desperate need of the gospel, and we're not using our resources to fight the real enemy, and it's not one another. How long will we be people of petty revenge? How long will we be people that write someone off because they made us upset? 
Let's just be honest. People in this church will hurt you. Will you stick around? When someone in this church hurts you, when someone in this church does something that you don't think they should have done, will you stick around? When I say something that hurts you, that offends you, and I'm not saying like, oh man, that was stepping on my toes. I mean I open my mouth and something dumb comes out. Thank you. The guy that I work out with laughed. <laughs> when I say something dumb, will you stick around? Or will we treat one another like the enemy and you know what, we'll just find another church. How long? How long will we do this and meanwhile the enemy is, 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 is storming our beach, if you will? That's what Paul is writing. Church, finally, finally I write to you. You have an enemy and it's not one another. You have an enemy and it's not one another. And Paul tells us, be strengthened in the Lord. And it really just tells us this, that it's not of our, our own strength. Or we could say it this way, that you do not fight alone. Not only do you have an enemy and it's not each other, but for the enemy that you do have, you do not fight alone. The battle belongs to the Lord. And now that we know the enemy, right, we can fight against it. If they would have just woken up Hitler, who knows what would have happened. But they didn't. They fought alone. And let me just be, and we don't do this a lot in our culture, but let me just be, if I can, a prophetic voice that says to you, wake up. Like, we were praying with the team today before we, you know, started service and during run-through, and my prayer is that we would wake up, that we would read passages like this, and we would realize that if we don't fight alone, then wake up. Wake up, sleeper, in your job, wake up. In your marriage, wake up. In your parenting, wake up. In your unity, wake up. In your community, wake up. In your church, wake up. Don't drift. Wake up. We do not fight alone, and we know who the enemy is, and that's half the battle. Be strengthened in the Lord is what Paul tells us. He is with you. And how are we strengthened? Let's look back down at verse 13. For this reason, what is the reason? Paul says, I'm glad you asked. Because you have an enemy, and because it's not each other, and because you don't fight alone, for this reason, take up the full armor of God, so that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having prepared everything, to take your stand. Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the black stone or the evil one. Nothing else very good, okay. <laughs> Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. You see, all of this that Paul is writing about here, it was Roman soldier cultural garb. It's fascinating to me that Paul was writing in chains, probably looking at a prison guard, saying, ooh, that, yeah, that's good. That's good. He's saying, put on the full armor of God. Each of these pieces was a strategic utilization of the equipment to protect themselves in battle. And the key word of this passage is to stand. You see, we put on these pieces to stand firm. You see, throughout this entire book of Ephesians, there has been this sense of urgency and responsibility. And I think it culminates to this. You see, Paul is writing to a people to stand firm and put on the armor. And so the question becomes, who needs armor? 
Who needs armor? Those who are engaged in the battle. So the question popped up, are you engaged in the battle? Who needs armor? Those who are in the battle. You know who doesn't get football pads? The equipment manager. You know who doesn't wear a helmet? The water boy. And many times we act in this church, I'm talking citizen church, two months old. We act as if you guys are the equipment manager, Adam is the quarterback, and you're just serving me. Or you're serving Lindsay Teal, who leads hospitality. No! That's not how this works. We are not equipment managers. We are in the game. Cards on the table? If you're not here to brew coffee, we won't have it. If no one's here to park, we won't have it. I promise you, short of preaching, I, if, if we don't have enough people in kids' ministry because, you know, the same people are serving every week and they're missing service, we won't have kids' ministry. It's very simple. We want everybody in the game. You're not here to serve people who are in the game. You're here to be in the game. Get in the game. Are you engaged in battle? That's who needs armor. The person on the sideline doesn't need a breastplate. The person on the sideline doesn't need a helmet. The person on the sideline sure as heck doesn't need a sword. And so here Paul is instructing the readers to stand firm in the full armor of God. Why? Because he expects them to be in the battle. He expects them to be in the battle. He doesn't ask. He doesn't say if it suits your schedule. He says put on the full armor of God. Because you're in the battle, saint. You're in the battle. But the question becomes, how do I know if I'm in the battle? Like, like seriously, how do I know if I'm in the battle? How, how do I know if I'm engaged? Is it how much of a jerk I can be in my social media posts? Is that how I know I'm in the battle? If I can just stir up a fight on social media and tell people how for I am, that like, like, like this is what I'm for and this is what I'm against. Is, is that what being in the battle means? Is being in the battle, man, like, like I never talk to the Lord, but dinner's on the table, so I better pray. Is being in the battle, oh man, Citizens Church is asking me to serve again. I, I guess I better do it so they get off my back. Is that being in the battle? Guys, I hope it's not. Because I'll tell you right now, if that's being in the battle, you ain't going to last long. You're not going to last long. So how do we know if we are in the battle? This is what Paul is ending with. Man, praise God, if there was one thing that we could walk out of here today, wouldn't it be like, man, how do I know I'm in the battle? Well, let's look back down, verse 18, and this is the closing verses of the book of Ephesians. I love this. What does he say, verse 18? Pray at all times. He just talked about being in the battle. Putting on armor, holding a sword, having a helmet. Pray at all times in the spirit with every prayer and request. And stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for the saints. Pray also for me. This is Paul asking these people to pray for him. Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. How do you know if you're in the battle? Do you pray? I mean... Let's ask it this way. How do I know if I'm not in the battle? And I'll just use my life, for example. How do I know that I'm not in the battle? 
my life just kind of starts to wander. I start to drift. I get a little more loose with my tongue. I get a little more lazy. I don't work as hard. I don't eat well. I just do whatever feels comfortable to me. How do I know if Adam isn't in the battle? I just don't care about anybody else. Uh, if I can be honest, I just don't care. I, I, don't, I don't care that I offended you. I, I don't care that you're, you're upset. I, I, I just, I, I don't care. How do I know if I'm not in the battle? I just drift. I just drift. So how do we know that we are in the battle? If we know we're in the battle, then prayer will be our response to every day. I, I don't know about y'all, but I don't drift towards prayer. I don't wake up in the morning, hit my knees, and pray for the day. I wake up in the morning, turn off my alone, check my emails, see the text messages, maybe lay there for another 10 minutes, then get up, feed the dog, all the things that I do like almost subconsciously, and prayer is probably not one of them. So how do we know if we're in the battle? Jesus, help me stand in my marriage. Help me stand in my parenting. Help me stand in my unity. Help me stand in my church, my job, my school. Jesus, let me pray to you, and we pray what? Expectantly. Jesus, I know that there's a battle. I know that there's a battle, and I know that without you, I lose the battle. I drift towards defeat. My tongue is loose. My actions are mean. I'm lazy. I, 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 like, Jesus, bring me. Uh, like, give me foundation. May I find myself in your scriptures. May I find myself in your love. Jesus, center me. And many times we exchange this kind of prayer for the prayer that says all we can do is pray. Oh, Adam, you, you, you're a jerk to your wife and friends. All we can do is pray for him. No, no, no. As a soldier of Jesus, prayer will be our first choice of weaponry. That's what Paul's saying here. If you are in the battle, your first choice of weaponry should not be your opinion towards others and being the loudest voice in the room. You should be the loudest voice in heaven. You should be the one lifting your prayers. God, I am in a battle right now. And in fact, the New Testament frequently extorts Christians not to cease from prayer. We're not going to turn there, but Luke 18, Romans 12, Philippians 4, Colossians 4, 1 Thessalonians 5. All these places say, hey, don't stop praying. Jesus himself, in the Sermon on the Mount, tells his disciples what? When you pray, pray like this. He doesn't say, if you decide to pray, this is what you can do. He says, when you pray, in the same way that Paul is expecting the Ephesians to be in a battle, Jesus is expecting that you pray. And I'm going to be honest with you, prayer intimidates some of, some of us. And I get, I, I get it. If I'm being honest, I know the language. I, I, I have an undergrad degree in religion. I have a master's degree in religion. I know the language. I can sound really, really heavenly up here if I want to. But man, prayer is just the honest admission of where you're at in your heart right now. The good news is that the New Testament tells us, man, even when we don't know what to say, literally, physically, spiritually, the Spirit prays for us. Man, what if your prayer was Jesus? What if your prayer was just Jesus? Je Jesus, I need you. I need you. What if that was your prayer? Is that enough? Pray, saints. 
And I love what Paul says here. He says, you don't just pray for yourself, but you actually pray as an intercessor of the saints. Translation, pray for one another. Paul not only tells them to pray, but then he says, actually, hey, pray for me. Pray for me that I may have boldness. Pray for me that when I open my mouth, wisdom comes out, that the gospel comes out. In our prayers, we pray expectantly. No soldier goes to the battle expecting to lose. So why should we pray as if God maybe hears us or that he may intervene? I would rather get to heaven and God say, man, you, you prayed for a lot of stuff. Like, like some, some of those prayers are really bold. I'd rather get to heaven and be mistaken like that than get to heaven and God say, why didn't you pray for more? Why didn't you pray for healing? Why didn't you lay hands on people? Why didn't you pray for marriages to be restored? Why do we just, God, if it's your will, may we be healed? Why do we not pray, God, heal me? Come on now. He's bigger than, like, if he doesn't answer, if someone isn't healed, then God's not good anymore? Guys, we can't be that shallow. We can't be. He's the God of the universe. So let's pray expectantly. Like, literally, why don't we pray, God, the Jews that are suffering right now, God, bring them safety. If it's your will, bring them safety. It is his will. Let's pray for it. I'm getting heated. I better back out. God is always working, even when we don't see it. Saints, let us pray <laughs> as if the God in heaven actually hears us because he does. And get this. The battle is won. Beyond our intellect, beyond our comprehension, God is ordaining all things to work for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Sermon in a sentence, engage in the battle knowing that the battle is won. You see, we don't fight for victory, right? We fight from victory. That Jesus is actually doing something, that we engage in the battle, we take ground, we stand firm, knowing that the battle is won. Why can I pray for people to be saved, for people to be healed, for God to speak? Because he's going to. He's going to do that. So why don't we pray fervently knowing God hears us? We pray for those to be saved because they will be saved. We pray for those to be healed because they will be healed. We pray for those to be restored because they will be restored. This is our reality as a believer, and we got to walk in it. Guys, Jesus is doing something. And how do we know that the God of heaven hears our prayers? If I could just for a minute speak to you who are hurting in the room, maybe this whole Jesus thing is new to you. So even praying to Jesus, it's like, I don't, I, like, I, I don't even know what that looks like. I can't muster that up in my spirit. Like, I, how do we know that the God in heaven hears our prayers and that the battle is won? We say it in our language all the time here at Citizens that we pray expectantly and we pray a lot because God in his kindness, he actually hears us. We know that he actually cares to hear our prayers. And we know that God cares to hear our prayers because the good news of the gospel is that God cared about you so much that he would actually come in flesh, take on your sins, die on the cross, go into a grave, and resurrect over those things. If God did not care, he would not have come. And so the good news of the gospel is that, man, Jesus, if, if, if you have defeated my sins and you have triumphed over my death and I have eternal life, then surely you hear my prayers. Surely we know that the battle is won. If Jesus has resurrected over death, 
what does the enemy have left? Because the Bible is clear, even death itself doesn't separate us. Paul would tell us that in Romans 8. What separates us? Even if you die, you win. So what you got? Saints, live like this. Pray like this. And I know it's not easy, but the good news of the gospel is that Jesus cares because he came. And if he resurrected over death, he can resurrect over what you are going through right now. That mountain will be moved. And guess what? I can say that the mountain will be moved, and in the same breath know that if it's not, God is still good. We can pray that the sword wouldn't go against anyone, and in the same breath know that if the sword comes against you, you're good. To die is gain. We can lay hands on people with cancer knowing that, God, you can heal. You can literally take away tumors. But if you don't, cancer can't separate us, so you're good. God, you're still good. Engage in the battle, not just knowing, but believing that the battle is won. What if you lived like this? What if I lived like this? What if I woke up every day and knew that the battle was won? And man, I was ready to engage. I was ready to engage, not in my opinion, but in my prayers. I was ready to engage, man. I was ready to pray for y'all. I was ready to pray for my wife. I was ready to pray for my family. I was ready to pray for me, and I started my day off, and God, I'm going to pray till you interrupt me. What if we did that? Man, that's, what, that's where change starts. So maybe you're thinking, man, this is a really good conversation. Can we continue it? And the answer is yes. You see, next week we start a brand new series, our summer series, looking at the Sermon on the Mount. We will be walking through what we're calling the best sermon ever. Jesus talking to his followers. I think continuing on in this thought, like, man, wh- like we've been talking a lot about what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to walk in unity? What does it mean to walk in prayer? What does it mean to engage in the battle knowing that it's won? And Jesus is going to pull up a seat and say, man, I'm, I'm glad you asked. And so if you're like, man, can we continue this conversation? Then I invite you to come back next week. And I invite you to come back over the summer as we look at Jesus' words themselves. And what Jesus says about life, what Jesus says about marriage, what Jesus says about turning the other cheek, what Jesus says about fasting and praying, what Jesus says about adultery, what Jesus says about hate and anger and murder. Like, what does Jesus himself say about it? Let's find out. And so I pray, I pray, and I pray that you will come back. We're really looking forward to that. And so saints, engage in the battle, man, believing, knowing, trusting that the battle is one. Pray at all times. Be the loudest voice in heaven. Be the loudest voice in heaven. And as Nathan comes back up here, let, let's just pray. And, and as we pray, let's just take, man, we, we did this this morning. I feel like I need these pockets of just silence and solitude. And so let's just take 15 to 30 seconds And just listen to that still, small voice wherever you're at in the room today. I don't believe God is a God of riddles. I don't believe God (laughs) is a puzzle master where it's, I believe God speaks to you. I believe in our heart we know that God is saying something to us. So let's just take a few moments just to breathe, be in his presence, understand that he's closer than our skin. And for those of you who don't know Jesus in this room, take this moment.
to maybe actually think about it. God, what are you, what are you speaking in my life? I don't even know who you are. I, I, how do I know that I'm in you? Man, let, let, let's just take a few moments.